Welcome to Chelton on this Labor Day Sunday, church. How's your work life been? I mean, who likes to talk about work, right? You're like, come on, Jin, you have to talk about work at church? I came to church for a break of work. But here we go, as it's been announced already. Today, we will conclude our Proverbs series and final topic that we are talking about is work based on Scripture, the book of Proverbs. Last few years, let's be honest, work has changed quite a bit with remote work, a lot of work burnout. Work has been such a hot topic, and nowadays, I've seen a lot of this trend called quiet quitting. I don't know whether you have seen that on the internet. It's like, who cares about going over the board? Just meet the minimum amount of work. That's all that matters. So we will address that. What does the scripture have to say about your work, your vocation? That's what we are talking about today. Let me give you a little boundaries framework, what we are not going to do and what we are going to do before we dive in. What we are not going to do is this. You've heard many sermons like work hard, come to church, share the gospel to your coworkers. That's what your work is all about. Great. You should. Uh, but like, why? Uh, what I want to do today based on Proverbs is what's the underneath all that? What is work all about even from the get-go? Why do you work? Why does your work matter? What's the fundamental reason of work is where we are going throughout the scripture. I have a pretty audacious attempt here, church. I'm planning on covering from creation to follow mankind to new heaven and new earth. That's the entire Bible. It's pretty audacious, but I think you kind of have to see the whole scope of Bible to understand what work is all about. For example, like I put, if, if you grab the sheet on the way in that has the book of Proverbs, all the verse contain, contained, in one of the verses I put, like 6, 6 through 8, it Proverbs says something like this. Go to the ant, you sluggard. You heard ladies reading. Consider its ways and be wise. It's talking about, this section is talking about diligence, why you ought to be diligent in your work. In the following verse, honest skills and balances belong to the Lord. All the weights in the backs are of his making. Back then, you weigh the merchant. So you, you kind of cheat the scale. You can potentially charge the customer more. So this problem, what it's doing is calling for honesty and integrity at your work. And what we are asking today is why, though? Why primary ethics, according to the book of Proverbs, is integrity and diligence at work. But why does Proverbs say that? What's the assumption underneath that allows this author to speak that you ought to be honest, you ought to be diligent at your work? Why is the very question that we will be asking. So I hope you are ready to dive in as we are going about it. There are three sections that I want to explore. First, our call to work. What is our calling in words? What is work all about? We'll explore them. What it is, what it is not. I'll go to creation account for that, our calling for work, our call to work. And second, we'll explore the reason for God in your work. Does your faith actually matter? Because you're Christians, where you view work, where you work is any different than the world, or it's all the same. So we'll explore the reason for God in your work. And lastly, we will do the case study of a faithful worker written here in the book of Proverbs. So are we good with that? Our call to work, what it is, what it is not. 
And also we'll talk about the reason for God in your work. Does your faith actually matter in your work? And lastly, how does that actually manifest in your work field according to the Proverbs? We will explore that. So let's go one by one. First, our call to work. What it is and what it is not. Look at the first verse I listed on the sheet. If you want to look just the Bible, go to Genesis 2 and Proverbs 31. Those three will be the main text today. But if you have the sheet, all the verses are listed there. When you look at the creation account, Shelton, here God creates heaven and earth day by day. And after he creates each day, he pronounced benediction and it was good. And he delights in his work that he has done. Like Genesis 2-2 calls, by the seventh day, God had finished all the work he had been doing. So on seventh day, he rested from all his work. So Genesis itself called that God had worked. He created this earth. He himself worked. And not only that, first verse written on your sheet, God himself not only worked, but what does 2.15 say? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. The first reason our call to work is that God himself worked, and it is biblical mandate that he has called us to work. Here, 2.15 clearly tells that. Notice, this comes before the fall of the mankind. In other words, this work is not the result of a curse. Before even the mankind has fallen, work was there. Our God himself worked. And the word used there in 2.15, work, it's an interesting Hebrew word, abed. It is very robust, comprehensive nuance of that word. When he says to work it and take care of it, yes, it means toil and labor. That's what the work word means. Work means work, right? But it also means service to others. So work is not only for your good, laboring for your good, but to bring common flourishing of all humanity, regardless of their state, regardless of your vocation. It's an aspect of service. You're working not only for you, but for the good of others. And also this work used in other cases, this word is used about like over 280 times in Hebrew Bible and NIV and some translation translate this word also as a worship over 50 times. So it's not only labor, service to others, but it's a service unto God, Levitical priestly duty that goes unto serving God. You're serving God. It's a work as a means of worship. So do you see that in the biblical aspect of worship, what God commands us to worship has the labor, but also to serve others, but to serve God. All those robust nuances to that. Now, it's like... What is work all about? And what is God calling us to do based on Genesis account? What God is work is ex nihilo. means he made out of nothing. He created us out of nothing. And our call to work is to rearrange all that God has made and bring order to it. I'm paraphrasing the definition from the, one of the resources I gave you, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. We are called to work in a sense, commissioning order from what was out of order. For example, I don't know how many bakers we've got here. Have you tasted yeast itself? Oh, man, I've tasted flour myself. I almost choked myself. I felt like I was drinking dust. It tasted terrible. But when you put a bunch of ingredients, whether it be yeast, a flour, a little bit of a salt, 
and baked it as a fresh loaf of bread. You brought beautiful order out of this raw material, put it together. Just like God delighted himself after creating this beautiful earth of artists. When you paint, to me, it's a bunch of tube with green color, red color, black color. But some maybe artists, painters here. When you put that in order with a masterful hand, a skillful hand, and there's a beautiful artwork. This is glory. Maybe we have construction workers here. Uh, you buy all the sidings, roofing. To me, it's just a bunch of wooden pieces. But those you know skilled how to put floors together, how to remodel house, how to put the shingles together, you bring order from this raw material. That's what work is all about, commissioning order from what was out of order. Yes, it's a labor, yet it's to bring flourishing to all people surrounding, and it's for the glory of God. And our call to work is bring order out of order. Having said what work is about from creation account, let's talk about what it is not. Because when you nuance one or the others far above, you can fall potentially two errors of either viewing work with a romantic view or reductionistic view. Let me elaborate. Either reductionistic view of work or romantic view of work. Both are pretty fallen. First, reductionistic view of work. Typically, if you are like World War II generation boomers, you tend to think this way, if, if I can make general scope. Work, it's just necessary evil. I must do it to get by. I must win the bread. That's what it's all about. I hate it. There's no meaning behind it, but this is something that I must do. Well, it's, we talked about it. Yes, it is labor, but it's more than that. God himself worked and he called us to work. There's dignity in work, and it's way to worship God. It's more than that. Millennials, I'm going to talk to you just in a moment, but we have something to learn from the generation because you tended to fall into romantic view of work that, oh, work is my identity. It's my fulfillment. I get to you in a second. But this view of work is just necessary evil. It's just means to an end, fall short. Because weight reductionistic, work is much more than just a means to an end to get by. There's dignity that God has created. Another potential false way to view work is kind of a divide called the secular and sacred view of work. Like, my work is only meaningful as a Christian if I share gospel with other people. My work is only meaningful if I like, work for a Christian organization. My work is only meaningful if, just name it, if you are in ministry or you do this kind of a God-given work. My work is only meaningful if I just convert somebody for the glory of God. Well, no. All work matters, really do. Why? Why do I say that? From creation account, once again, when you look at Genesis, we have a God who gets his finger dirty. He's a gardener. He creates a garden. Sure, I'm speaking metaphorically here. But dirt under his finger creates this garden. And when God becomes incarnate, our God didn't come as a pastor. Jesus didn't come as a temple priest. He came as a carpenter woodwork god himself worked in it all vocation is for the glory of god and it's, it has dignity in itself work is not just a result of a curse but from the very creation god commands us to work to serve you your community and for the glory of god who really pioneered this thought destroying the secular and sacred divide in preparation of this sermon, I've been reading some Martin Luther, who was kind of pioneer of Protestant Reformation. 
He was a big proponent of that. There's no such thing as that. So he's calling out, what I'm about to read, he's calling out the German nations um, to the prince of how secular and sacred divide is killing them. This is Luther's word, not my words. Let me read it to you. There has been a fiction by which the pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate. Prince, lords, artisans, and peasants are the temporal estate. This is an awful lie and hypocritical invention. But let no one be made afraid by it. And for this reason that all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there is no difference among them, save of office. As St. Paul says, we are all one body, though each member does its own work so as to serve the others. This is because we have one baptism, one gospel, one faith, and are all Christians alike. For baptism, gospel, and faith, these alone make spiritual and Christian people. Get that? There's no such divide. What a terrible injustice that I'll do to you. If I sit, stand here and say, eh, you people just work nine to five jobs, work hard so then you can get some money. Give your money to church so that I can do real ministry, work for the Lord. No, our call is to commission you into your workplace for the human flourishing of all that God has called you into it. There's dignity in all vocation, whether it's a what quote-unquote called a sacred ministry or secular ministry. Our God was a gardener. Our God was a carpenter. And he brings about human flourishing in all that we do. Having said all this, we should rectify doing work as neither just necessary evil or, oh, my work is only meaningful if I get to do this kind of Christian work. None of that is true. Having said that, we can potentially fall in air of doing work as kind of romantic view. We do that in two ways. I, I think it was Mark 20, if I'm right, says something like, how did it say you never go to, if you enjoy your work, you never work a day in your life. Something like that. He said that. I mean, I get his point, And that's right. You've got to enjoy your work. But under the fall of mankind, there will be frustration. When you view his work as, oh, this will be romantic. I found my dreams up. So there will be no frustration, no hardship. That's such a romantic way to view work. And that will not fly. Even if you find your dream job, you will be frustrated. There will be times with marvelous the turmoils and toils and labor because that's the reality. Or perhaps, I think this has been more hit me home personally, is that sometimes you try to find the primary meaning of life through your work. That's a very romantic way of your work. I am some, if you feel sometimes like, I am somebody because I work for this company. I am somebody because I have this position. I am somebody because I make this much amount of money. Or on the other side, you feel like I am nobody because my work. Uh, I am nobody because uh. what you're doing, you made work as a substitute God. When you try to find a primary identity through your work that will not last. We have a God who forgives us when we fail him. Your work, when you fail it, you'll get fired. It will not save you. But sometimes I think especially our generation try to find the primary meaning of life 
through work, especially since industrial revolution and modernity, I think we've accelerated the movement far much more. What do I mean by that? There is one preacher that I greatly admire who was one of the main subjects of my doctoral study. Is the preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a minister in London, Westminster Chapel. But what's fascinating about this guy was that before he was a preacher, Welsh Protestant minister, before that, he was an MD, medical doctor. And not just regular MD, I'm talking about the top-notch of top-notch MD. He was at one point the assistant to the royal physician. He was one of the prominent, uprising, super famous doctor who kind of left all that to go actually be a preacher, became a phenomenal preacher. But one time he gathered all the medical professions and lecturing to medical profession, and he shares the stories about when he was walking in a tombstone and how sometimes when you have a good job, you try to find identity. I am somebody because of this. This is what Lloyd-Jones said. There are many whom I have had the privilege of meeting whose tombstone might well bear the grim epitaph. Born a man, died a doctor. The greatest danger which confronts the medical man is that he may become lost in his profession. So many people took identity through their work. I'm nobody, I'm just a man, but I'm doctor. I don't, I don't want to put that in my tombstone. I'm not MD, by the way. But Why is there so many last names like Smith, Baker, Cooks? Those are vocations that became identity, last name. We try to find the meaning of life sometimes through work. And this movement has only accelerated that the work has become essentially substitute God these days. I was very surprised and delighted to find an article like just a few months ago, May 24th, 2022. In New York Times, this professor, Dr. Chen, is an associate professor of ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and she wrote a fascinating article that I've been feeling and thinking. She articulates so much better than I do, called, When Your Job Fills In For Your Faith, That's a Problem. This is what she says. Plenty of writers have argued in recent years that work has become a false idol with the office, not church, the place where many Americans now seek out meaning and purpose. As a sociologist of religion, I think these writers are right. Work is replacing, and in some cases, even taking the form of a religion among many American professionals. She continues, As I discovered during my research, the gospel of work is thin gruel, an ethically empty solution to meet our essential need for belonging and meaning. And it is starving us as individuals and communities. What she's addressing is sometimes you think because you have this work, you are meaningful in somebody. But it's a very poor substitute because she addressed that in here in New York Times. This, I am convicted too, Shelton. Oh, you think, well, Jin, you're a minister, so you must find fulfillment. I, I do, but like, what if I try to find the primary meaning of my life through how I do in ministry? Ministry is a very poor substitute for God. If I judge myself based on how I preach, how I perform at my ministry, how well you receive sermon, how poorly you receive my sermon, that will kill me each day. I cannot live up to that. Same thing to you. 
Sometimes when you have such a romantic view of work, that's functionally substituted what God should be in your heart. You feel like, I am somebody because I have this prominent job. What are you going to do when you get let go? Hmm? What are you going to do when you are not able to work? This modern culture, especially the romantic relationship at work, those two became practically operating God in our lives. And neither of those are true. Neither reductionistic view, work is just necessary evil. Work is only meaningful if I convert somebody to Christian. Or romanticizing view, oh, work should never be frustrating. Or I am somebody because my work. Or I am nobody because of my work. Neither falls short. Those are not biblical mandate of what God has called us to do. But he has simply called us to work because God himself worked. There's dignity and intrinsic value in all that God has called you to do in whatever you do. And we are to bring flourishing of all our cultures and surroundings through our work to serve one another. So first, we talked about our call to work, what it is, what it's not. Second, let's talk about why do we need God in our work. Now, this, uh, if you look at your sheet, I looked, included another wisdom literature called the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, this is a difficult book to digest. Perhaps one day we should talk about it as a church. But if Proverbs is more like a, doesn't it feel like a little preachy? As in like, hey, work hard and you'll get it. Hey, do it and be diligent, you'll be successful. Ecclesiastes is not quite like that. He sounds much more like a face debunk course in your college. Now, the ironic thing about it, this chapter, chapter, the Kohelet, the philosopher who is writing here, speaking, is that he's actually a believer at the end of, we look at that at the end of Ecclesiastes. He believes in God, but, but even if he believes in God, when he tries to find the meaning solely on what can be found within the confines of this material world, through your achievement, pleasure, and learning, that's all nothing. 2.17, what does it say? So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. Either he's having intellectual meltdown or became really skeptical. What good is this all about? If this is all there is under the sun, if this is all there is, my work is meaningless. What is this Kohelet philosopher addressing? He's addressing one of the innate human desire for permanence. If this is all there is, YOLO, you only live once, party it up, church. Why bother to work? I mean, everything will be fade away. Your work doesn't matter. But we want our work to matter, don't you? You want to make meaningful impact through your work. That's a godly ambition. Why is that? Because it provokes one of your desire for permanence, like lovers, spouses, or whatever state you are in. I mean, why do you ask them, honey, do you still love me? You don't respond by them saying, I told you a million times, get over it. Yes, I love you. You don't respond that way. You said, yes, I do love you. You know that. What is the lover asking? They want to be reassured of the permanence of love. They want the love to last and reassured. Why do you take pictures? Because you want to treasure the memory. You want to be nostalgic and remember all those good times. You want things to last what good is your work if it all, I work hard, but it's all fatal and meaningless. It's going to all go away. What good is that? One more thing. Why, why does death hurt so much? To the degree that you have loved somebody, death will feel like a deep violation. 
Why is that? Because it violates our desire for permanence. We are meant to live forever with God in eternity, but because man has fallen, that desire for permanence has been violated. It has been sucked away from us. Likewise, you want your work to last and make its impact for the good of the society and for the world. But if this is all there is, once you die, everything will fade away. But what if I tell you, no, your work is a means to bring in God's kingdom for the flourishing of all kind. What if there is a work even when new heaven and new earth comes? There was work before the fall of the mankind. What if there is a work in new heaven and new earth? Some of you guys are getting really nervous. Jin, you tell me I slept work in new heaven and new earth? Well, I may be unemployed in heaven. Who needs a pastor in heaven when there's Jesus? But there is even work. Different, but the redeemed work will be without frustration, joy only. When you look at Isaiah chapter 60, it's a fascinating chapter. It's the kind of parallel chapter of last two chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And it's an account where all nations are coming together to worship Jesus. Like there will be ships of Tarshish from north and south, east and west are all coming to Jerusalem, this new heaven and new earth. Do you know what they are bringing? They are bringing the finest gold, which is the cultivation of their work. And they are bringing, the, there's architect, they are building a wall. And there's woodworker bringing juniper and cypress as a form of worship. This all creation bring their finest goods in the presence of God as a means to an end. If God doesn't exist, if this is all there is, then of course I'll view work as only necessary evil. There's something I must do to get by. If God doesn't exist, of course I'll try to find the primary meaning of my life, my identity through my work. What else? But if God exists, then there will be work as a worship throughout all eternity. You can't have this calm assurance knowing that you work hard unto the Lord for the glory of God to serve your needs for the good of all people and for the glory of God. And at the end of the night, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, all is vain. God grants sleep to those he loves. You sleep peacefully at night because you worship the Lord through your work. Uh, so there is a reason for God in your work because apart from that, everything will fade anyway. Why bother? Now, how does this so we talked about work is, in a sense, commissioning order to what was out of order. It's, you shouldn't view it reductionistically nor romantically. It's, it's much more than a robust nuance to that. And your faith matters because otherwise it would be all meaningless, just like the Kohelet is saying. How does this marinate all into our workplace today? As you conclude our series in the book of Proverbs today, we want to look at very briefly the example who personified all that we have talked about in Proverbs 31. Now, Proverbs 31.10, I must admit, before I even dive in, this is minefield. It's known as a virtuous wife chapter. The last few sections of Proverbs. But actually, it's so much more than that. When it's translated as virtuous wife, it's right translation. But the same word, virtuous, is translated for men. It's translated as strength, army, power, all that. The wife can also, it's in the context, is wife, but it also that word is translated as woman in many places. In other words, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 that we look at is far much more than how to be a good wife. It applies for you and me, gentlemen. It applies to all of us who are gathered here. 
As the book of Proverbs talked about personified wisdom, its culmination is right here in Proverbs 31, 10 through 33. Everything we talked about, let's see how it boils down. Look verse 11. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She is woman of integrity. People trust her. Her husband trusts her fully. Look verse 13 and 15. She's diligent. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. Verse 15. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She is diligent in the work that she goes about it. And verse 14 and 20. She serves others. She not only labors hard, but she serves others. Verse 14, she's like merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. Her work benefits her customers. She selects what is the best from afar. She resources the best good to potentially serve her clients and customers the best. Not only that, verse 20, she opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Her generosity is not just personality quirks. It's the character trait deep down. It comes from her excellence at her work because she makes a profit and she's able to give and be generous in all that she does. Why does she labor so hard? She's integri- she has integrity and she has diligence. She's generous. She's compassionate. Why does she all that? Here's the summary of the entire Proverbs that we have been talking about. Proverbs chapter 1, it began with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Entire Proverbs end with a woman who fears the Lord, working her hands and heart away for the glory of God. Look, last two verses of the entire book of Proverbs. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gates. She is a woman of integrity. She is diligent. She is caring precisely because she fears the Lord. She submits to the will of God, God's order of this universe, and she portrays the characteristics of God in a workplace. Because she fears the Lord, she can do all these things. Sheldon, is there any, like, is her work distinctively Christian? I mean, not really. She's in verse 13, she's not saying, Oh, I'm selecting wool because I'm a Christian. No, I mean, other people can select wool to sell them. I mean, uh, maybe we have cooks or we have, I don't know, mechanics here. You don't say, um, like, because I'm Christian, I don't use MSG in my cooking. A lot of Asian food is MSG, FYI. <laughs> like, mechanic, you don't say, like, because I'm a Christian, I only do synthetic oils. That's just a more economical choice. It's not like distinctive Christian way to land an airplane. There's no distinctive way to land the airplane if you're a pilot. So it's not addressing exactly how to go about, but because deep down in your heart, you fear the Lord in your deep down heart, in a way that you conduct your work, you work with great diligence, with integrity. You neither try to find identity in your work, nor view work as just necessary evil. You serve the Lord through your work. You serve yourself and meet the needs of yourself. Yet you also bring common good, ushering God's kingdom in all that you do through your work. Do you get the biblical view of work is not just a curse. It's so much more robust than that. 
So church, that all that boils down here, Proverbs began with the fear of the Lord, ends with the fear of the Lord working. On this Labor Day, I hope this will be our attitude in a way that we go about it. How do you find strength to do all that I have talked about through Genesis to New Heaven and New Earth to this book of Proverbs? Remember this. In a moment, we'll go to the Lord's table. But remember this. We serve our God who worked for us. He worked to create a flourishing garden. He called us to cultivate the garden. But because we did not fear the Lord, we rebelled. We wanted to go our own way. Now the work is troublesome. It's not only joy, but there will be frustration and difficulty as well. To rectify the problem, God went to work once again. God came as a carpenter. And then one day he was hanged on that woodwork called cross. And through his work on the cross, now we are redeemed. Through what Jesus Christ has done, his work that he spent all his life preparing for, he went to the cross to redeem our mankind, redeem us. He did that with great integrity. He did that with love and compassion. That's his work. That's the gospel. And now he's calling us to resemble that. So, what good is your work, Shelton, apart from the Lord? It is vain. We sang it during the service. It is vain to rise early and work hard unless the Lord builds the house. Glory be to God. And you work hard and you rest at night knowing that your identity is not your work. But there's meaning in that. But your primary identity is God himself who went to work for us, to usher us into the glorious kingdom, to redeem our you and redeem our work. One day is coming where you will work not with a frustration, with a joyous endeavor all your life. May the cross of Jesus Christ compel you and compel us to be this virtuous woman in the book of Proverbs that points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. In all that you do, may we serve him, serve others for the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Oh, God, I, I barely scratched the surface. There's so much in this chapter, so much, oh, Lord, when we talk about work. Will you give us wisdom, oh, God, how to conduct our work? Our work is vain unless you are there. So may our faith in you compel us to view work in a way that you want us to view it. Give us the right dignity in a way that we do our work. And help us to rest our primary identity in the cross of Jesus Christ. So God, this hour, as you remember you, I pray that you bring our hearts at rest. You grant sleep to those who you love, those who work hard. Oh, the weary heart, weary heart may find a home today as we continue to worship. In your precious name we pray. Amen.